Blaise Pascal was a French mathematician and philosopher. He only lived for about 39 years, but he has an amazing impact on Western culture. He wrote in his uh, book, Pensées, All men seek happiness. All men, all people seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended with different views. The will, your will, never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every person, even of those who hang themselves. We'll seek happiness. About a hundred years after Pascal wrote that, the United States Declaration of Independence, 1776, wrote these words. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, and that among these rights are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Three rights are mentioned there. Very interesting. That uh, they, they said these are inalienable rights, that you, you, you should have life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, one thing we can all agree on, I think, is that this is how we live. This is how we live. We want to be happy, and we seek it all the time, even those who hang themselves. Now, the teacher in the book of Ecclesiastes has been on a grand quest for happiness since the start of the book. In chapter 2, verse 1, he says, uh, I will I'll test my heart with pleasure to find out what is good. I want to know what the good life is. And last week we thought about some of his explorations in wisdom and education, in pleasure and seeking fun, and in projects. Great, grand designs that will surely make life feel satisfying. And in chapter 2, verse 11, he gave a kind of preliminary summary of his findings. Have a look with me, chapter 2, verse 11. He says, okay, when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I'd told to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. And we thought about what that word meaningless means. In the Hebrew language, it's a very rich Word We don't have an exact equivalent in English. The word in Hebrew is hevel, hevel, and it means a breath, a wind, a, just a puff of air, a vapour. Like when you breathe out on, a, on a, a winter's morning and you see your breath. And the idea of that breath is that it's, it's here and gone, it's transitory, it's thin, it's kind of empty and futile. And also you've got no control over it. You see those three, three ideas? Temporary, empty, and no control. He says, it's like uh, all these things I was trying to do, they were like a chasing after the wind. You chase the wind, you know the thing is, if you've ever tried it, you can't catch the wind. And even if you did, you wouldn't have anything in your hand. So he, he concludes, nothing was gained. Now, we're only in our third week of this series on Ecclesiastes, and already it is provoking a very interesting range of responses in our church. Some people are loving it, and last week two of them, younger people, ran up to me and said, when is the podcast going to be uploaded, because I want to share this with my friends. Fascinating. 
Other people are finding this too, it's too hard. It's, it's too heavy. And it is pushing them into a place where they don't want to go. Now, I think that's what it was designed for. This strange book, this wild book, is in the Bible because we need it. It asks the hard questions and the awkward questions that you have but you never want to say out loud. Even the most apparently robust believer has doubts. You know that? Even the most apparently robust believer has doubts and struggles in life. And this teacher who writes this book gets it all out there on the table. And it's not neat and tidy, it's quite messy, and often it looks hopeless. You see, we all tend to live in a bubble. We all tend to live in a bubble, whether you're an Orthodox Christian here today or a secular humanist, whether you're a believer or a skeptic, we all tend to live in a bubble. One person's bubble is education and knowledge. That's how they sort of make sense of the world. They protect themselves from life with their knowledge. Another person's bubble is, is just sheer pleasure and fun. They don't want to stop and think about hard questions for too long. They'll run out to the next party. A third person's bubble is an absorbing project, whether it's something in their career or a, a house project or, 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 or acquiring wealth or property. And what this book is doing is bursting our bubbles, one after another. He's taking a pin and deliberately, because he wants to burst the bubble world that we live in, that we use to distract ourselves from reality, and he wants to leave us naked and shivering in the cold light of day. Why? So that he can lead us to a better place and show us a better way. Now today we're going to read the conclusions. Can he just read them for us? The conclusions to this pursuit of happiness, and there are three points. One, the big problem. Two, the bitter product. And three, the better path. The big problem, the bitter product, and the better path. Firstly, then, the big problem. So we've thought uh, last week about some of the problems with the pursuit of happiness through acquiring wisdom, through seeking pleasure, through developing great projects. The problem with wisdom is you can never know enough. You remember that quotation that with, when the island of knowledge increases, so does the shoreline of ignorance and questions. Indeed, too much thinking can be bad for your health, can't it? He says so in chapter 1, verse 18. With much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. A lot of learning exposes you to the complexity of life in a way that can be unbearable. One of the scholars who writes on this book talks about going to a party when he was a student and seeing a brilliant philosophy student who was there at the party holding a bottle of vodka in one hand and rhythmically banging his head on the wall. Just a warning to any philosopher students out there. <laughs> the dangers of wisdom. Pleasure. We saw last week that even, even if you had unlimited wealth and unlimited resources, the law of diminishing returns is always at play. Even the very rich say, I just want a little bit more. And pleasure is temporary, isn't it? It cannot give you a lasting ultimate satisfaction. And then there's projects which may seem more substantial. If only we could put our money into bricks and mortar and have that conservatory built on the back of the house or have the garden done. In the first part of chapter 2, he talks about building a virtual paradise. 
got fruit trees and reservoirs and groves and houses. It's like a new Garden of Eden. And the conclusion is that nothing was gained. Nothing was gained. Why? Because of the big problem. Now, this is the elephant in the room. Or is it the gorilla in the room? I'm never sure which one it is. Anyway, it's a big thing in the room that no one's talking about. The thing that no one wants to say in our culture, we don't even actually... We, we have euphemisms for it. We talk about somebody's passed away. Or, I lost them. Which is a funny expression, isn't it? I lost someone? It's because we don't want to talk about the D word. Death. This is the big problem. Look with me at chapter 2 again. Verse 12 to 13. Then I turn my thoughts to consider wisdom. And also madness and folly. What more can the king's successor do than what has already been done? And I saw that wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. Now, wisdom is better than folly. Wisdom is like the light. The wise person can see what's going on in life, can't they? They have a certain clarity about things. They can perceive, they can see through things. They have understanding. What a thing to be wise. The foolish person is just trapped in the moment, aren't they? They live in the dark. They don't have a clue about what's going on. And in verse 14, he says that the wise have eyes in their heads while the fool walks in the darkness. Now, which would you rather be? Obviously, you want to be a wise person, don't you? You don't want to be gullible, naive, easily led and impressionable. I want to, I want to have eyes in my head, see what's going on. I want to do that so I can live well. And that, that takes wisdom. But here's the problem with it. Carrying on in verse 14. The same fate overtakes them both. I came to realise that the same fate overtakes them both. We're all going to die. It doesn't matter how many GCSEs you've got, A-levels, degrees or PhDs. It doesn't matter how much skill or professional savvy. It doesn't matter how high your EQ, emotional quota is or how politically skilled you are it doesn't matter how how much raw intelligence you have and how effortlessly brilliant you may be we all end up in the same hole in the ground not the same hole but you know what i mean (laughs) and if you think about it how much real benefit do you end up with compared to an absolute numpty The teacher says in verse 15 and 16, no matter how wise or foolish, we're all going to die. Verse 15, the fate of the fool will overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? I said to myself, this too is breath, meaningless. For the wise like the fool will not be long remembered. The days have already come when both have been forgotten. Like the fool, the wise too must die. Just imagine two guys going for a walk and they take a shortcut through a railway tunnel. And as they're walking down the tracks in the dark, they both see a light in the distance. And one of them's really happy because he's seen the light at the end of the tunnel. The other one is wise. He knows it's the headlight of the oncoming train. Both of them are killed instantly. How much benefit did the wise one get? You know, for a few seconds, he felt superior to his friend. Boom. This is the big problem. Hang on, you say, hold on. This is a bit bleak. It's a bit bleak, isn't it? 
At least I can use my wisdom and skill to do, to do something, to achieve something, to give something back. I could make a contribution. I won't fritter my life away. I'll make the most of the opportunities I have to do something meaningful. I will leave something for posterity. But the teacher says, really? You think you will? The same logic applies to all your work and all your property. Look at verses 18 and 19. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish, yet they will have control over all the fruit of my toil into which I've poured my effort and skill under the sun. Whatever you toil for, you've got to leave it behind. You're going to leave it behind. And who will get it? And what are they going to do with it? Have you made a will? People start writing down. Oh, no, note to self. Have you made a will? You know, that is, that is where your control over what happens to your property ends after you die. That's it. Chances are they won't use it the way you would have because they haven't worked for it. Nick Wheeler is a British entrepreneur. He started a shirt company in his second year at university. The company is now called Charles Tirrett, after his two middle names. Nick Wheeler and his wife, Chrissy, have a combined wealth estimated at £452 million. He says, I don't know if we're going to have anything when we come to pop our clogs but I wouldn't give our kids a lot. Having everything given to you on a plate is incredibly unfulfilling, and you end up going off the rails big time. He's right, isn't he? How many stories have you heard of wealthy heirs who frittered away the family fortune? It's a cliche. So I just want to warn my kids now, you're not getting much. You may inherit the finest theological library in West Didsbury. At least I hope it's the finest one. I'd be really miffed if it's the second finest one. Do you know what? They'll, they'll sell them on Amazon. <laughs> so he, he concludes, verse 21, a person may labour with wisdom, knowledge and skill, building that theological library. And then you must leave all they own to another who has not told for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. Bad luck. What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving with which they labour under the sun? It's the big problem. The permanent human problem is that none of us is permanent. Nothing we do is permanent. Nothing you do is permanent. We're all going to die. Sufjan Stevens is an American musician and songwriter. He had a difficult childhood because his mother had severe mental health issues. When he and his sister were very young, she took them out to the shops and then abandoned them at the video store. She flitted in and out of their lives after that. Sometimes she'd be gone for years and then she'd come back. A chaotic and unstable presence. But she was still his mum. Stevens wrote a whole album reflecting on his mother's death from cancer. And in one very moving song called Fourth of July, he writes about the last conversation he had with her in the hospital. And it's an exchange between mother and son. And it uses some of the affectionate terms that they had for each other. I'll just read a few verses. Sufyan says, The evil it spread like a fever ahead. It was night when you died, my firefly. What could I have said to raise you from the dead? Oh, could I be the sky? 
on the 4th of July. And she replies, Did you get enough love, my little dove? Why do you cry? I'm sorry I left, but it was for the best, though it never felt right. And he replies, The hospital asked, Should the body be cast before I said goodbye, my star in the sky? Such a funny thought to wrap you up in cloth. Do you find it all right, my dragonfly? And she says, Shall we look at the moon, my little loon? Why do you cry? Make the most of your life. While it is rife, while it is light, we're all going to die. We're all going to die. Okay. So now the bubbles have been burst by death. So what does that do to your heart? What does it, what does it make you feel? Now the danger is that it leads, us to a, leads to a bitter product. That's the big problem. We're now onto the bitter product, which is despair. Despair. Look with me again at our text. The teacher here is painfully honest. Remember, he's a believer, but he's not a faker. He's painfully honest about where it all led him, and he uses two phrases that I find particularly searing. Verse 17, So I hated life, because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of its meaningless are chasing after the wind. I hated life. Verse 20, So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labour under the sun. This is what happens. This is the bitter reaction to the thought that no matter how you play your cards, every hand will be trumped by the Grim Reaper. Here's the honest emotional impact of investing in life under the sun and coming to realise that we're all going to die. You can't take it with you. You have no control over what happens to your legacy, your name, your property, and you will soon be forgotten. It can lead you to hate life and it can lead you to the bitterness of despair. And maybe some of you are facing that now. David Foster Wallace was a a, a very well-regarded, award-winning author and a professor of English literature. And he saw these issues and he said that it was a problem of what we worship. He said, everybody worships, the only choice we get is what to worship. And a compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much everything else you worship will eat you alive. Not a Christian. He carried on. If you worship money and things, money and things, if they're where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. Worship your body and your beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power and you will end up feeling weak and afraid. And you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fears. Worship your intellect being seen as smart and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. You see what he's saying? This could be straight out of Ecclesiastes. We're in a mess. We don't know how to sort out our own hearts. We strive and strive. We invest our lives in all these things, all these dreams. I could be wise. I could be happy. I could could build this great project. And whatever you give yourself to, whatever you give yourself to is the thing that you worship. That is life under the sun, according to the Bible. 
And life under the sun is our author's shorthand for living in this world without taking God into account. It's life without God. Living life as if there's no God, nothing above the sun. There's nothing and no one out there. It's all just on this horizontal plane. And David Foster Wallace was intellectually honest enough to face his own conclusions, and it led him to take his own life at the age of 46. Is there anyone here today who realises that they have come to hate life? Is there anyone here whose heart has begun to despair? Do you realise it now that you've over-invested in something? You've, you've just over-invested in success or in trying to build that career. Or you over-invested in just in money, in having enough to be secure. You over-invested in a relationship. You over-invested in greatness. You burned yourself out to get there and when you got there you realised it was just like chasing the wind. You've got nothing in your hands. Have you seen through it yet? You've got to see through it in order to get through it. And if you are in that place, let me say, not flippantly, you're in the right place today. I'm not joking. It might well be that God, the living God, has brought you to this place in your life in order that you might reach out and find him. He's not far from any one of us. Big problem death. Bitter product of despair, but there is a better path, and that's where I want to finish, the better path. Now, some of you think you know what I'm going to say now. You've been around churches enough, and you've been around this church maybe, to know where sermons often end up going. You think I'm going to say something like, don't put your trust in wisdom, pleasure and projects, put your trust in Jesus. But you are wrong. <laughs> Fooled you. Because that's not actually where Ecclesiastes lands the plane, at least not at first. Look at verse 24. A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? To the person who pleases him, God gives me. God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. Interesting. What is he saying? Eat, drink, and be merry. Try to find enjoyment in your work, in your toil, because these are gifts from God to you. Not what we expected him to say. He says, when we accept in a deep way that we're going to die, it can help us. We can stop expecting and demanding too much from life. We can learn to enjoy life, wisdom, pleasure, projects, for what they are in themselves. Not what we need them to be in order to make us happy, but to receive them as good gifts from God, who loves us. You see, if you're always leaning too much weight on something to give you ultimate satisfaction, ultimately it will break and everything comes crashing down. But death can give us a better perspective. Death can be our friend. Because death reorientates us to our limits as creatures. Death says to us, stop striving to be God. 
and enjoy the good things that God has given you here and now. Now, I know I'm gonna, this is radical. I'm going to say something that's radical here, okay? I think this seems to be teaching that Christians should actually enjoy life. <laughs> I told you it was going to be radical. Christians should actually try and enjoy life. <sighs> radical. Now, notice from the text, this is the point where God appears. It's a bit like a stage, you know, it's been, it, we're on the stage and God hasn't been on the stage for the whole of chapter 2. And now he, he enters from stage left. And he's mentioned three times here at the end. Uh, this, verse 24, this is from the hand of God, what you've been given. Your food, your drink, your work. It's from the hand of God. Without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? To the person who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge and happiness. So God is is the one who's going to give us happiness. Now this is the fundamental reorientation that we need if we're going to live well these short lives that we have on this planet. God gave it all. He gave you everything you have. He's giving you the next breath in your lungs. He owns it all. He knows it all. And whatever you have came from him. Freely given, he didn't make you pay for it. And so you, are, you and I are net receivers. We didn't create ourselves, and we don't know how long we've got, but there is a God in heaven, and he gives me everything I have, and everything I ever will have. So can we just stop striving to be someone other than we are and enjoy life? God gave it to you to make you happy. So instead of trying to use the world and people and money and use these gifts of God as a means to be someone, be great, can we just stop, take the time to enjoy the gifts we have and see that they came from the hand of a good father? I'm always nagging our children to give thanks for their food. And for some reason, they always forget. But we're all like children, really, aren't we? We forget to say thank you. We forget to pause in the midst of our busy lives and thank you, Lord, for this blue sky today. Thank you, Lord, for this friend. Thank you, Lord, for this great meal. Thank you that I'm alive. Thank you for all the things you've given me. I I don't deserve any of them. Everything came from you. Thank you for this. Do you see the hand of God at work in your life and take the time to stop and thank him? Or do you eat and drink only as fuel to do something else? Are you toiling to find purpose and satisfaction, to be someone, to succeed, to, to get up there wherever that may be? And once you get there, you realise there's always some more people who are higher up. Or just to enjoy the work you have, whatever it may be, can we learn to rest our lives in the hand of God, the good Father. Can we learn to quiet our restless hearts in him? He gave us all we have, and one day he will take it away. Blessed be his name. The big problem? Death. The bitter product? Despair. But the better path is learning to live life given by God. One of the great Christian uh, thinkers of the last 50 years is a man called James Packer. 
He's a brilliant um, theologian and scholar and a wonderful writer, very gracious man. And Packer is an expert on a period in church history called the Puritans. Now, the Puritans get a pretty bad rap in, in culture, but actually they're very often misrepresented. And Packer talks in his book, A Quest for Godliness, about what he's learned from the Puritans. And he, there's a couple of paragraphs that are just gold, so I want to read them to you. He says, The Puritans have taught me to see and feel the transitoriness of this life, to think of it with all its richness as essentially the gymnasium and dressing room where we are prepared for heaven. I think we've been distracted. Can we all focus back? I'm going to start that quote again. The Puritans have taught me to see and feel the transitoriness of this life, to think of it with all its richness as the gymnasium and dressing room for where we are prepared for heaven and to regard readiness to die as the first step in learning to live. You know that? Being ready to die is the first step in learning how to live. The Puritans experienced persecution for their faith. What we today think of as comforts of home were unknown to them. Their medicine and surgery were rudimentary. They had no aspirins, no tranquilizers, no sleeping pills, no antidepressants. They had no social security or no insurance. In a world in which more than half the adult population died young, and more than half of children born died in infancy, disease, distress, discomfort, pain and death were their constant companions. They would have been lost had they not kept their eyes on heaven and known themselves as pilgrims travelling home to the celestial city. They were aware that in the midst of life we are in death, just one step from eternity, and it gave them a deep seriousness, calm yet passionate, with regard to the business of living. That Christians, in today's opulent, mollycoddled, earthbound West, would rarely manage to match. Few of us think, I think, live daily on the edge of eternity in the conscious way that the Puritans did, and we lose out as a result. They prepared themselves for death, and they were always packed and ready to go. See the difference? Living in the light of death changes how we live now. Now, in a moment, we're going to come to the Lord's table to uh, celebrate communion together. We're going to take a little bit of uh, wine and bread and remember Jesus Christ and his cross. And as we do, I want to just take one last look at Ecclesiastes and look at the author. Chapter 1, verse 1. The words of the teacher, the son of David, king of Jerusalem. That's how he identifies himself. And in verse 12 of chapter 2, he says, What more can the king's successor do than what has already been done? In other words, nothing more can be added to this. He's tried it all. He's explored it all. He's done the research. Nothing more can be done. What more can the king's successor do? Indeed, but, you know, there was one successor, one teacher, one son of David, one king of Jerusalem who did more than all of this. Because he rose from death. And so he conquered death, our great enemy. In other words, there was one person in history who opened the door of death and showed us that there was something on the other side. At his cross, Jesus Christ took your death penalty and paid it himself. 
At his resurrection, Jesus Christ provided justification for us. We're made right with God. And at his ascension, Jesus Christ went to the place of power. He rules at the right hand of God the Father, and he prays for you, Christian friends. And he has promised to return in power to make all things new. So while we wait for his return, let's eat, drink, and find enjoyment in all our toil, because he loves us. Amen. Let's pray.